Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are excited to welcome Ridge Shin, Executive Director of the Northeast Grass-Fed Beef Initiative and co-author of the book, Grass-Fed Beef for a Post-Pandemic World. He's been a leader in the shift from feedlot production to raising cattle on a diet of 100% grass and forages. Today, Monty and Ridge talk about everything from soil health to cover crops to beef genetics to available markets. It's a great conversation wrapped up with a powerful message about the impacts of running ruminants on the land. We've got a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. Welcome everyone to this episode of Ag Emerge Podcast. I'm really uh, blessed to be joined by by Ridge today. Uh, he's a cattle producer and 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 has written. You know, you know, you've really arrived when you've written the book on the subject. <laughs> so uh, Ridge has done that, and he's got a lot of things to share with us today. So, yeah, Ridge, uh, introduce yourself uh, and, and share a little bit of your story. You know, um, how you got to where you are, and and your why, if you would. Yeah, sure. So. Um... The, um, you know, the, the, my story is that today, you know, many people think of a problem. If you're a carpenter, you know, every problem's a nail and you're going to hit it with a hammer. And, uh, you know, if you're a musician, you're going to hit every nail with your guitar or your voice. Well, I think all problems can be solved by cattle. So that's where I am today. There's <laughs> a firm belief, but it's been a long trail to get here. So I've been at this for about 20 years. I was one of the ones that first kind of stumbled upon grass-fed beef and realized the research was there. Nobody was doing it. So it's been a long trail. You know, we, we, we decided to just raise some cattle on grass and harvest them, and it wasn't very good. Then we had to learn about genetics, and we had to learn about management of the grass and getting enough energy in the grass to actually make cattle fat. So it's, a, it's been a long, long learning um, career for about 20 years and in all different businesses along the way. And... Um, trying to, to <clears throat> get to this point. And then eventually, as Monty was saying, it's been condensed into a book. So I was, you know, for years I gave talks at the NOFA conference, the organic conference. And uh, many times I thought, well, geez, these people are interested in vegetables, not beef. You know, why am I here? But one day a guy came up and said, you know, you really need to write a book. And I said, I know I do, but how do I do that? He said, well, I'm a senior editor at Chelsea Green. Let's talk. So <laughs> that was the genesis of the book. So we finally have kind of got um, the stories put down in one place, which is really nice because I love telling the stories and we don't have time for me to tell you all the stories, <laughs> which I would be delighted to do. But, um, you know, our the, the title of the book is Grass-Fed Beef for a Post-Pandemic World. And we feel that, um, you know, uh, Cows have been so vilified, but cows are really the way out of this whole climate situation, soil situation. The cows are the uh, the keystone species that can make this happen quickly. And I, by quickly, I mean not eons, but three, two or three years, we could make a huge shift in 
uh, soil carbon pulled out of the air by photosynthesis and water retention and fixed water cycles is this could happen so quickly. And we're actually reaching a point I feel where <clears throat> the consumers are beginning to understand that there's been so much chatter for so long now that they're beginning to get it. They want grass-fed beef. One of the challenges you go into most grocery stores and there's a whole rack of grass-fed beef, you know, three or four or five different choices. And 85% of that came from Australia or Uruguay, not from the USA. And it does have, you know, you can bring a container load of grass-fed beef from Australia to Boston. You can take the meat off the boat, take it to a processing plant in Massachusetts, grind it up. And when you put it in the package, you can say product USA. So that's a big problem for the consumer that really wants this stuff. And yet what's in the marketplace is something from somewhere else. And the, you know, the problem with that is that there's, there's no problem that they're doing it elsewhere. There's a problem that it's not fixing carbon, fixing the water cycle, creating jobs here in the good old USA. But that's beginning to shift. So I don't know if that gives you a little bit of background well, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate that. But let's let's back up to you said, you know, kind of 20 years ago, you started this journey down on grass-fed beef. What what was the aha moment or, or how did you begin exploring this at that moment in time? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I my career was actually building houses. I built timber frame houses for about 35 years, but I always wanted to farm. So um, in, about 20 years ago, I decided um, to get started. So actually, it was interesting. I started with pigs, and I had all the heritage breeds of the pigs. I had large blocks, colossal spots, and I absolutely loved the pigs. And um, but then I realized that the pig is a monogastric; it's only got one stomach. Therefore, it cannot make its living on grass. So you know, it's all kinds of people talking about pastured poultry and pastured pigs, and they have these beautiful pictures of the pigs rollicking in the grass. Right outside the frame of the picture is that three-ton grain feeder, which is where they're getting their nutrition. It never makes it into the picture with the grass, which was very frustrating to me because I know this is the case. And they can get some of their living off grass, but they certainly, chickens and pigs need a, a source of concentrated nutrition that's not going to come from grass. So that so I get started there. I started a group called the New England Livestock Alliance because one of the problems with going to market is one farmer with 10 pigs can't really go to market. So I thought I could organize farmers. We did, we started organizing farmers. And then I stumbled upon the grass-fed beef uh, literature. Joe Robinson had done all this gathering, all the research. And I'm like, oh my God, this actually, you know, this is not a new concept, this works, <clears throat> but let's do it. So I went to one of my producers. I said, let's get six head of cattle and let's raise them up with no, with no grain raise them up on grass. Well, we did, took them to the slaughterhouse. Then oh my, some of it was pretty good. Some was absolutely terrible and tough and inedible. <laughs> and that began our odyssey. So we had to learn, you know, what kind of cattle. So we have all these different methodologies. You know, I hired a consultant. We used an ultrasound machine to look at the into, into muscular fat and tenderness in the animal. <clears throat> we had these tools called linear measurement tools where we could actually physically measure the animal, put the data into a spreadsheet and tell you whether this animal is gonna function well on grass or not. And so, so it was a long learning curve because a lot of the cattle that have been bred for the feedlot don't work very well on grass. So there's um, 
uh, again. So so we eventually got to the point where we could produce really excellent meat. We've, we've blown away top chefs like Dan Barber. You know, he's like, oh, my God, this is grass fed. And I, it's a one of the best eating experience I ever had. But, you know, a lot of the people that embraced grass fed were like, we know we should be doing this, but this meat, you know, you got to pound it for an hour. You got to boil it for three and then maybe you can choke it down. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a high quality, high consistent quality product, but we've learned how to do that. And now the challenge is doing that at scale with a lot of farmers. So our model is that <clears throat> the, the average size farm, at least in the Northeast, actually around the country is 30 or 40 head of cattle. And what happens, all, grass, all cattle are grass fed up until, typically, until they're weaned and then they're <clears throat> backgrounded somewhere and the vast majority of them end up on the feedlot. 97% of the cattle in this country end up on the feedlot. But they're grass fed until that point. So our concept is instead of putting them on a truck and send them to the feedlot, we aggregate them. So we get the cattle from a bunch of small farms and we put them on a grass finishing farm. So we have one, for instance, in Vermont, it's 1800 acres, contiguous acres of grass where you could graze up to 800 head. Because here in the Northeast, we have this crazy thing called rain, which means the grass grows. <laughs> you know, in a droughty year, we only have 35 inches of rain. But um, <clears throat> so that's the big concept. In order to get scale without going to the, the insanity of a feedlot, where you put the animals in one place for the last 120 days of life and you bring the feed to them, we replicate really what we're trying to do is replicate a herd of buffalo. You know, there's that biomimicry of the, the buffalo is the model. You know, that worked. Yep. Yep. So, uh, you know, out of that, of course, there's three or four questions that have come up just in, in what you're talking about there. Um, <laughs> well, first off, back to the, um, I, I think people don't fully know that on the monogastrics, the, the pasture raised, they're still fed feed. And, uh, you know, it's Absolutely. important for that feed to be the correct feed. Uh, and it's important for those animals to be used right because there is some synergies in using chickens on pasture ahead of cattle, you know, and restoring and uh, nourishing grasses. Uh, it, I've seen it on our own farm improve grass diversity uh, and, and growth. Uh, I've also used hogs for, um, you know, timber that has been overrun with invasive species, you know, in right. order to clear out the lower story to allow grasses to come back. So they're, they're tools, right? Um, now, the health Precisely. benefits of a grain-fed animal are, are, are not there, but if they're used right and, and on pasture, tenderly, they're, they're less stress, right? So they've got less uh, uh, stress-related type of cofactors in them. So it's, it's a better choice, but, uh, you know, hey, eat beef, right? So <laughs> well, is that, you know, this, I, I, I very reluctantly gave up the pigs because I love the pigs. And, uh, but, you know, we were organic certified. So I was buying organic feed at an incredible price. You know, the, the organic food co-op unloaded at my shop because we had forklifts and everything. But if, I finally dawned on me that this that the pigs are a material handling business. And and the problem is the grain is coming from somewhere else. Even if it's organic, it's coming you know, there's, there's all these miles and here's the cow, which can just go right outside the door here, and make its entire living. So it was a very, you know, like I said, I gave up the pigs reluctantly, but the cows just, you know, since then have blown me away. Right. And uh, so you mentioned that there's several problems with grass fed today. Um, you know, one of the problems that 
you didn't bring up, but it's still a, a barrier to entry, if you will, is price point, right? Typically, grass-fed will wind up being about 2x. Uh, that has narrowed now with uh, the recent uh, inflation associated with, with corn-fed and the cost of corn and such. But I do think in order to keep that customer coming back, like you said, the flavor, um, you know, most animals are raised or select. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to get choice and those kind of things. So there's two things, like you're saying, you're doing, did you say you're doing sonogram measurements of rib eye area and, and those yeah, kind of yeah. things? And, and, yeah, and inter intramuscular fat. Yeah, intramuscular fat to know what you've got <clears throat> at the time and and those kind of things. But how, how can uh, farmers who are looking at doing this maybe for the first time, you know, start out correctly uh, to get better quality uh, meat that they're working with and and avoid raising select animals. I, I realize part of it is in in the feeding, right? And we'll talk it's about in the, uh, yeah. genetics. There's as much variation within a breed as there is between breeds. Absolutely. How do you identify that good intermuscular fat, the right uh, dimensions, like you said, you did measurements on your cattle too. What are what are good steps for people to look at in that? Well, the the whole key to choosing the animal is moderation. So you need uh, a moderately tall animal. The feedlot wants a real tall animal. By moderately tall, I mean like 48 inches tall. And what I say to people is, you know, the bovine, when a bovine is created, it's like they give you one chunk of clay. So if you make this animal tall, it's going to be narrow. If you make it moderate, it's going to be wide. And in order to function on grass, you need width and the moderate height. You need width in the front end. You need the capacity for the rumen to expand and take all that biomass in. And, um, you know, and then beyond that, you want tenderness. And so so I pick all British breeds. Don't go to any of the Continentals. The Continentals, you know, were brought in to, for the feedlot system to add size and scale, but they also brought lack of tenderness. They brought toughness and they brought lack of fat. So, for instance, Laura's lean beef was predicated totally on the limousine breed because they don't get fat. Well, now, if you if you get over the prejudice of fat and realize that fat is good for you, it's actually essential for your brain function, you know, the essential fatty acids, um, <clears throat> that more fat is good if it's the right kind of fat. Mm -hmm. And that gets us back to the, to the finishing. One of the things we've done as well as the sonogram is uh, actually physically test the meat, send it to Clemson University. So we sent like eight, eight samples and it came back one select, six choice and one prime. And the, the research, Susan Decker called me up and she said, Rich, oh my God, what's going on here? You've these grass-fed cattle and they're fat. And she said, I know that you didn't feed grain because I look at the omega-6, omega-3 ratio. And when you feed grain, it's 10 omega-6 to 1 omega-3 or thereabouts. And when you feed grass, it's like 1.2 1. 1. to 1. And she said, your ratios are perfect. So I know you did not finish them on grain. And I said, yes, but we finished them on grass. And one of the big problems in the industry, if you go to anybody's website that does grass-fed beef, they said lean meat. And all the research, I, I got into it with uh, uh, Cordain, who's a paleo guy. And he does all this archaeology on aurochs and the paleo people and he said you know they they killed these huge cows with wooden spears and they were going after the lean meat and i raised my hand i said no they're going after the fat he goes lean meat i said no fat i said you all you have is the bones how do you know what they had but he said well all the research says grass-fed beef is lean i said all the research is wrong 
because how it's done is they take 100 head, they put 50 on feed, and they leave 50 on forage. And when the 50 on feed get fat, then they kill them all. And guess what? The ones on forage are less fat than the ones that were. So it so takes really, longer. It's all yeah, about. Right, exactly. And so it's I say, about, when did you? Uh, yeah, they say that, that'll screw up the that'll screw up the research. But I mean, that is the the key is that you have to start with the right genetics, but then to get them fat, you have to provide enough energy in the grass. You know, in the grass, everybody thinks grass is grass, but the top of the grass plant is where the energy resides, and you know, then you have lignin and protein. So when you're finishing, the cows just need to walk along like the buffalo and eat the tops of the grass, get the energy. So, no. so back before we get to the feeding, I want to let's stick on the genetics here a little bit. So you're measuring on the frame size and you mentioned you want to have plenty of room for the rumen to expand. Uh, but uh, this is a key concept. So when you've been doing it for 20 years, this is just second nature, right? But if somebody is looking at doing this or is, or is new to it, it's important to understand why uh, we're looking for that. Because when you're a grain fed diet, energy density is not a problem because grains are very energy dense you can eat 35 pounds to 50 pounds dry matter of energy dense grain ration and you get all the energy that you need in abundance but you limit out on grass-fed because you can only fit whatever 35 to 50 pounds of dry matter into the rumen uh, and, and then you're out of space right so you know on on one side there's there's two types of fill uh, there's bulk fill Another is just volume that fills up the rumen. And then there's also satiety, which is uh, nutrient or, or energy fill. So, you know, uh, you only eat until you're full, essentially, that, that feeling that you get of, of being satisfied, right? So that, that's why you're looking for this frame <coughs> size is we got to have a big barrel to stuff as much in as we can because the density of grass is just never, no matter how good we grow the grass, it, it's not the density of grain. Is that... Is that precisely that right? Focusing on that, right? Precisely right, and 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 the the big difference between cows and calves is in the cow calf operation. This is why I think you know there is a bifurcation in the industry right now. You have cows and calves, all grass fed, and then you have the feedlot. And I think the same thing is true in the grass fed because you have cows and calves, and the nutritional needs of a cow and her calf are totally different from a finishing animal. So a cow is already grown. She needs enough um, biomass for, for maintenance. And she also has got to make milk for a calf. But that, so, so you could move that cow every three days and you, she'll get plenty of nutrition. Mm -hmm. With a finishing animal, you know, they need to have that energy all day long. You may have to move them two or three times a day to bring them to new grass with the, where they can eat just the tops. They can just cream it. And that's... So it's a very different management system um, for cows and calves and the finishing. Um, so when you're you get that at, energy. Right. So when you're looking at the breeds then, you know, oh, it's Angus, right? Everybody's got to have Angus. So there, there's there's some options out there, you know. Right. I right. run a lot of British white uh, or, you know, some have white park and there's speckled parks. There's, you know, red Angus and, and, and those kind of things. What it's not about the breed. Uh, precisely you it's a hundred percent not about the breed they all they all the skin color looks the same on the rail doesn't it right well the problem you know and the problem with the popularity of the angus is that they have kind of destroyed what they had so in all this ultrasound work that we were doing we would uh 
when we went to an Angus herd, and see the problem with the Angus is that the black polled characteristic is super powerful. You can put it on almost any other animal and you get black and polled, which people have done. So now you say, well, that's an Angus. Well, it's not, it's half uh, Holstein, <laughs> you know, it's still oh, black and polled. You what, know? What, is, what is the grade standard though? I mean, isn't it, isn't there something like if it's 51% black, it's considered it's Angus? Black Angus, right. You can so certify that, certified that, Angus. Correct. Yeah. So, isn't that why so many of the dairy uh, have gotten blacker hides on cattle? Because then when they have a bull calf, it, it's 51% or more. It can, am, am I correct? Exactly. You're, you're absolutely and correct. It's sold as that, an Angus that, steak burger. Right, right, right. But that's the, the problem is that. And then we went to some of the other breeds, like some of the more heritage breeds, like the Devon, for instance, every one of the animals hit the, hit the alarm, which is highly unlikely. But it is, you know, you do have, you, you, you need to start with a British breed. I mean, the Red Angus, what we found is the Red Angus is much better than the Black Angus because the red doesn't cover the sins. So the red is, you know, it, when we were at ultrasound, we found like um, in the high 90%, we're going to be a good eat. Experience. Okay, why why do you say it doesn't cover the sins? Well, the red doesn't cover um, the way the black does. When you read a, when you read when you breed a red Angus to something else, it's not going to push through its black hide and and pulled characteristic. The black is very powerful in that respect. You can cross it on just about anything; it'll come out black and pulled. And um, so, but that's been to the detriment of the breed. So you do have to find the subset. But what's interesting is that, in my experience, the best thing to do is to get some breed like Red Angus, because their, their quality is excellent. Somebody bred the rump off a lot of the Red Angus years ago. But then you cross them to another breed, like the Red Devon, and what you get, what you harvest as the producer is hybrid vigor. Uh -huh. So it's the textbook case that if you take two unrelated breeds, cross them and you'll get 20, 15 to 20% more, faster growth and bigger. I used to do this with the bigs. I'd run straight lines. And then I crossed the Gloucester old spot to the Tamworth. And literally you look at these piglets and they would be at least 20% bigger than the main, than the straight line. Mm -hmm. But the problem with it is in the university to tell you to crossbreed and crossbreed and actually people produce what they're called composite bulls that are all crossbred bulls, which is a real insanity, I think. But anyway, what happens is you lose control because that F1 heifer that comes out of the cross is yep. so beautiful that you just got to put her back in the herd. You know, right. imagine a black baldy. Oh, man, that's so great. Yeah. But so what happens is as soon as you begin to put the, the crosses back in, then you lose that heterosis, that, that heterosis wrap. But it's a it's a real um, management <clears throat> tool that you know I have one farmer in Pennsylvania that does that all the time, and it's just remarkable when he sends me his carcass um, reports, his carcass cut out, and but it takes real discipline. So you you know he's got red Angus, he's got a red Angus bull, he breeds the top 20 percent for his replacement heifers, and then he breeds everything to a Devon bull, and he but he kills males and females out of that. Uh, hybrid vigor cross. But in, if you're a, in any business in the world, if somebody said you can make 15, 20% more, it would be like, oh my God, how do I do that? But in the cattle business, it kind of gets, it gets messy, you know.
what are other uh, British breeds that uh, you, you found from your test? Well, the okay. ones that you the ones that you mentioned: British White, uh, White Park, the uh, Murray Gray, uh, the Galloway, Belted Galloway. There's a there's a whole bunch. But again, doesn't sound like you're you're very uh, uh, breed uh, you're breed agnostic, uh, except I, for maybe I, like me. You're uh, except I, for the Continentals, except for the Continentals. Right, so I, I mean, you know, you're British breed agnostic. Yes, absolutely. But so, maybe, you know, maybe don't favor the Black Angus just because they've been well, really it, so it, messed it, with. No, it's no, hard, there's hard some, to find true. Yeah, I wouldn't actually go there because there's some phenomenal grass Black Angus, but you got to go find them and not just pick a black hided animal. Correct. But yeah, yeah, no, I mean, give you an example of the uh, some of the breeds. So, I this lady has had real nice crossbred British cows and wanted to sell me her, her, her feeders one year. And I said, Well, I got to come up and look. So, I I'm driving along, I see the cows in the field, I think, oh, great, you know. Then I walk in and start looking at the calves. Somebody had sold her a blonde aquapane bull that was like seven feet tall that totally stripped the bodies off of all the calves. And I said to her, I said, Mary, I would love to buy these calves, but I cannot buy these calves because these calves will never get fat on grass. Well, they'll take them four years. They'll get fat, but it'll take them four years. you got to send these to feedlot. But if you want to participate, I can fix your problem. So I got her a Devon bull. And the next year she called me up. And she said, you wouldn't believe these calves. And I said, well, I would marry. And I don't have to drive up there because I know what ingredients we put together. But that that's, you know, the challenge with a lot of those continentals that people say, oh, to be bigger and blah, 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 but it doesn't work for grass. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. Right. Right. So there's some good tips there for people listening on, you know, especially on cow calf or cow calf to finish producers. Um, let's say for people that are wanting to integrate livestock onto cropland or get back into the livestock business, because, you know, a lot of farms were, were devoid of grazing. Absolutely. Livestock. Absolutely. Um, easiest way really is to start with some, some stockers or finishers versus, you know, the cow calf is an extra level of management and those kind of things. Um, where do you find good quality, um, stockers or good quality, um, finishers to work with and, and what do you look for and how, what is that process like? Because it is tough to make happen. Yeah. A feedlot well, will cover the sins of, I mean, you, you can pour the coals to them and you can get a good, good product, but if you don't right, start right. with good in grass fed, uh, you're never going to make it up. I couldn't agree with you more, but I would back up a couple steps because first to start from the cropland to anything, I would start with a cocktail cover crop. And, you know, we've done this numerous times. I worked for a farm in North Carolina for three years and we had, we were given burned out tobacco land. I mean, it had been farmed for tobacco for 30 years. <clears throat> we did a Haney soil test. We got a cocktail cover crop, eight species. We brought in us steers and heifers and we literally made gains of three pounds a day. I mean, it was stunning. And the impact on the soil was remarkable as well, because we grazed it to trample, you know, we, we made very narrow 
strips and we made sure that it was trampled what wasn't eaten and uh it was a remarkable way to just kind of wow fire tires that land and if you have crop land that's been farmed or farmed out that's a very fast way to go but in terms of um where to find the stock you know if somebody was really starting out i would tell them to go and find a dairy farm that has um too much nutrient on their farm and talk the farmer into giving them their dry cows or or their heifers because oh, it's a custom grazing arrangement yeah custom grazing and because if you're taking a worn out piece of land even a hay field and you start trying to graze it you will find there will be all these uh circles of, of green where the urine hit you know and it's going to take you a, well, a couple of years to get the soil life really vibrant which is what creates the nutrients in the soil that feeds the plant. So to be really successful, it's gonna take you a little while. So there's an interim thing there, but I'm, a, I'm not avoiding your question of where to find oh, the stock. I think those are all great, great starting points. You have to have, you know, high energy. The reason you're doing that cocktail mix and is for that energy dense uh, feed that it takes right. to, to flesh up, right? And then it's, it's low risk custom grazing. So you're not you know, exactly. you're owning them and those, you don't have to sell the product, you know, but, but then you're, you're getting a little, you're getting to the wild side here is like, okay, I want to own the animals and I want to maybe sell them to a program like yours, which we want right. to get into more too, or maybe direct to consumer. If I've, I've got uh, that opportunity. So right. what, what right. do you well, look for there? On, uh, let's say you want a finished animal for your, for your co-op that you mentioned. Yeah. What do you want that producer buying on the way in? Well, there, there, um, there are a whole lot of early adopters in this country that have been working on this for 10 years, going in the right direction. So there are some excellent starting places. And what I find in the Northeast is that the vast majority of the cows <clears throat> that are in herds in the Northeast are actually pretty good for grass. So, and the reason for this is what I call... Um, you know, if, if somebody has 30 or 40 head of cattle, they are not making a living at You know, they teach school in the daytime. They they sell tractors. They do something else. They got a side gig at a minimal. They probably got a full-time gig and the cows are a side gig. But the that, there's guys out West that have 30,000 cattle that probably say, yeah, well, <laughs> we still need a side gig too. You know? yeah, right. I, I don't but, think that's a uh, number dependent. It seems like in the beef. Industry, right. Unfortunately. Right. But but the but but what happens in that environment is, and I call it benign neglect. But you know, you get home from work, you get home from work. It's dark. It's eight o'clock. Ah, throwing bail. Hey, so actually, the cows that function under that management have got to be pretty good cows. You know, eventually you say, "Oh my, that one didn't have a calf again." Well, she's too big, so she's gone eventually. But the ones that are moderate are going to function in that environment. So the vast majority of the cows and there's a lot of british you know a, a lot of people that have tried to go with some of the continentals i tell them ah stop doing that you know just go back to that mixed so there's a lot of good <clears throat> cows out there and one of the challenges is that a lot of those people with the 30 head and the full-time job you know they go steal their neighbor's bull or they go to the auction buy the cheapest damn bull they can buy <laughs> and it and then that results is you know they get this beautiful cow if they just put a great um you know they put a great bull across it they would have dynamite but um 
a lot of them don't, but there still are a lot of good starting places. And there's a lot of people that finally say, okay, I'm, you know, if I invest in a young bull, that's the right kind of bull and it, and it costs me two grand, I can use them for four years. Hey, you know, we'll go over. And particularly if your management system is that you're not holding back heifers out of your herd, if you're just, you know, selling the progeny, then you can keep a bull for a longer <clears throat> period of time and never worry about inbreeding or Line breeding, line breeding. Yes, line breeding. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it. Acceptable <laughs> term, right? <laughs> All right. So um, talk to us a little more then about, uh, yeah, some of the cover crop mixes and your grass management techniques. Like you're saying, you know, eat the upper third where you have the highest energy density, those kind of things. What have been some of the uh, management secrets to being able to raise high quality uh, beef and uh, choice in the, in the prime uh, rated beef? Well, the, the, I mean, the real thing is just energy management. So with a cover crop, you've got plenty of energy. And, you know, to pick the specific cover crop, I always uh, recommend a Haney soil test. So a Haney soil test will actually give you some kind of general recommendations about the various uh, species to include in your, your, your cocktail mix. I mean, people refer to it as a cocktail. What it means is you've got eight different species. Some of the some of the things that I would put in anybody's species all the time, I would put in anybody's cocktail is chicory. For instance, chicory is just a remarkable plant. The cattle absolutely love it. It's high energy. It's got a tap root, so it'll 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 speed breaking through any plow sole you have on your ground remarkably. So there's a few things like that that I just ah, make sure I put some of that in. <clears throat> but the rest has got to be determined really kind of more by your what, what your soil reality is, you know, the choices for the cocktail. When you eventually get to a perennial grass, it's going to depend on the region you're in. You know, if you're down south, it's going to be fescue. It's going to, what's going to be coming in. Now, up here, it's going to be um, in the northeast, it's going to be orchard grass, clover. You know, if you just, so I've seeded down some pastures, and then eventually I have Orchard grass and clover. <laughs> you know? right. I mean, I've actually, I've actually taken corn land. It's been in corn for 25 years, and uh, so I started out. And I, I planted oats and turnips, and we grazed it off. Next year we did, I don't know, teff and something else. And the third year, I went back to see what, what am I going to plant this field to? And as I was looking at the field, the, the homeowner came out of his house. He says, "When did you plant the clover?" <laughs> And I had a I had a monoculture of clover, fourteen inches red clover, fourteen inches tall. I said I never planted a seed. I said I changed the condition. I scarified the seed. I got light in. I added some nutrients. Boom! It came up. Now that that year it stayed in red clover, and we grazed the red clover. Interestingly, we have a we use a, a cafeteria mineral mix. So there's twelve different minerals that animals can choose and one of the <clears throat> minerals that was flying out of the mineral box was vitamin a so i called the, the guy who made the mineral who's now deceased jim hefner and i said jim tell me about educate me about vitamin a he says well it's a detoxifier i'm like oh my god what am i what am i toxifying them with he goes well it's probably the nitrates in the clover so they're on a straight clover diet but they were able to balance it and actually those heifers that were in that and whatever it was eight acre field all summer were just remarkably well, real nicely grown. Yeah. Um, but they had that option of balancing the, and then, you know, the next year the, the orchard grass came in and now it's a, 
a polyculture, you know, yeah. with with some milkweed and a little of this, a little goldenrod, yep. you know, whatever. And we've had similar situations, and we'll overseed a winter cereal of some type in there, you know, a triticale or something, and that'll help them balance uh, the yeah. clover. And then yeah. uh, it'll peter out a little bit because we'll, uh, we have a little more heat, and we'll put a sorghum or a sedan grass, something like that, in there right. for them to, right. to kind of balance. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, so uh, side note, Jim Hefner, you mentioned him. Uh, Osco, Illinois is right next to where I am. And uh, Is that right? Oh, man. Minerals from his wife uh, <laughs> yeah. and use the same program on my own farm. So Fantastic. <laughs> it's a he's, small he's, world. A, he's the best. He, he, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what killed me about Jim is he was so knowledgeable and he never wrote a book. And it's just a crime because that guy knew so much. And yeah, so his wife's carrying on and some yep. other people help him out and all that. But it's uh yeah, it was a it was a remarkable thing that I learned. You know, early on I had a partner and we we decided that a regular mineral was didn't have an adequate selenium and copper. So we make, made our own custom mix. We actually called it Ridges Beef and Dairy. So we added copper and selenium. They said you can't sell it. Well, we sometimes we sold it, but we thought this was a perfect mix. And then I, I I did the insanity of importing a herd of Devons from New Zealand, and which is about the worst thing you can do to an animal, fly it from a different, you know, they came up, they got on the planes in the snow and they landed in the desert in California. But anyway, they were stressed. We knew they were stressed. We fed them, fed them um, mineral in their water, made them eat mineral. We got them back home here. And, <clears throat> you know, I'm thinking, boy, they don't look that good. They're, they're missing something. So I decided to try some kelp. I bought a ton of kelp, put it out there, and they inhaled it within like three days. I'm like, oh my God, they really need some. So I called Jim and I said, Jim, send me your mineral and send me your mineral feeder. So he sent me this hopper feeder with 14 slots, 12 choices. So I figured, great, I'll put the choices in and then I'll put my kelp in one slot and I put my ridges beef and dairy in the other slot. I moved the feeder out to the cattle. Well, they come over. They didn't go down the line and investigate. They came right over and ate copper and selenium. Boom, boom, boom. And and they never ate a bite of Ridge's beef and dairy again in their lives. <laughs> I had to chisel out of the damn feeder. It was like, <laughs> but this is perfect, guys. I made it, you know? Uh, yeah. Guess not. That's, uh, Guess not. <laughs> that's what happens is uh, we our hubris gets in the way of what the animals are telling us they need. Oh, exactly exactly so, now that's that's a that's a key thing uh and i you know friends with dr fred provenza and he he would back up that whole you know Absolutely. concept of animals knowing what they need you know uh and and providing it to them so it's, oh that that yeah it is a remarkable thing that a lot of people even people with cattle do not understand is that a lot of people envision the cow as like a mowing machine i just got a, a just why this comes to mind, I just got off a call with the Audubon people who are, who are doing this Audubon certification. And, and you know, they, they have a prejudice towards birds. And, you know, people think that this cow is like a mowing machine, but the cow only has one set of teeth and they have to pick what they're going to eat with their tongue. And they're incredibly selective. So mm -hmm. when you turn a cow into a new paddock, you turn a bunch of cows in a new paddock, what do they do? They go around and they top everything. Then they take a second pass and they take another bite. So, I mean, they know how to do it. Now, we keep them in that paddock until all they got is roots and stems. That's on us. You know, they know what to do. But that's the, the challenge is to, to, to magnify their opportunity for what they need at that stage of life. 
and it's very different if you're a cow and a calf than when you're um, a finishing animal. And uh, I have several pictures of uh, them eating around nests. Exactly. No, that, <laughs> that was a point that I was trying to make with the You know, that they will eat around it. They won't just randomly walk into it, knock it over or anything. You know, whether it's a ground nesting bird or a bush nesting bird, they, right. they will they will intentionally and they'll even leave some of the leaves around it too so right there's right. a level of intelligence there that um well and in in you know meeting their back. needs <laughs> that uh, a colleague of uh fred's uh utah say daryl emick did a study where they they planted strips of clover clover mix and grass they this was with dairy cattle so they're feeding the dairy different amounts of um, energy in their ration. And so with the cow, and then they grazed the strips, you know, perpendicular to the strips. And the cows would walk through the clover, go get the grass, if that's what they needed. Or they'd walk through the grass and go get the clover. So they're incredibly selective and smart at this. They've been around for <laughs> forever. But we as a humans, you know, that's our goal is the management is to allow them to, you know, excel at what they're good at. That's yeah. the real, real challenge. <clears throat> so talk to us a little more about the, the market development and, and how you um, heard, heard the cats, if you will, <laughs> to get a bunch of producers together and, and, well, uh, it's, and, uh, and make that happen. Okay. That's a work in progress. Put it that way. <laughs> I think it'll always be a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, anytime, so, you, anytime you have two farmers, you'll have at least three opinions. Right, right. So, uh, but anyway, so, you know, we started uh, Big Picture Beef, going to market, and, you know, we were in a couple, uh, number of retailers, and actually right before COVID, it, we write about it in the book, um, you know, I teamed up with a big company, Performance Food Group, you know, a $50 billion distributor, and I went and pitched their 100 salespeople in New Jersey, pitched their 100 salespeople in Connecticut. This is like January, February, 2020. So the, the salesmen are beginning to call me up. Like, well, we, we landed Gillette Stadium. We landed Dartmouth College. We landed Brown. We landed UMass. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is going to be a pile of meat. And then COVID hit, and it stopped. I mean, they didn't slow down. It stopped. Everything closed. So we've been doing a lot of legwork to get back. But one of the challenges in the interim um, that we have learned, and over the years, I mean, we used all these small, medium-sized plants all over the Northeast. I mean, we've been as far as Maryland to harvest cattle and northern Vermont. And um, what we realized is that these, you know, everybody likes the, uh, the phrase, small is beautiful. But in terms of processing, small is not necessarily beautiful <laughs> because of scale. So, you know, we were dealing, doing this deal with PFG and um, Steve, you know, who's been in the meat business his whole life. And I said, Steve, we just can't figure out how to make money at this. And he said, well, tell me what's going on. I said, well, okay, we'll just pull back the, the robe and show you all our numbers. He said, okay, so he said, what do they pay you for the offal? I said, pay me for the offal? No, no, I pay them to throw it in the dumpster because they can't really have, they don't have a business for my five oxtails. Or or my they five don't kids. have enough, they don't have enough um, volume there to consolidate exactly. into a truck that can send out every day. It, precisely. The logistics don't work. So they throw it in the dumpster. They charge me to throw it in the dumpster. <laughs> he said, okay, so tell me about your yields. And I'm like, you know, the yields from a primal um, 
you know, uh, tenderloin into steaks. Well, we're only getting like 50%. Well, it's it's operator error. You know, not not trying to diss on, God love the people that work in these small and medium-sized plants, but they don't have the skill level. So you can see, you know, we're, we're doing a set weight 10 ounce steak. Well, you can see they cut off 13 ounces and then they whittle it away, whittle it away. All that whittling goes into the block trim, mm -hmm. which you can't sell for a lot of money. So the percentage is way off. And he said, well, well, what about the price? He said, I said, well, it's like um, $750 an animal. He said, oh, that's crazy. He said, we're going to get you into a bigger plant. So he calls his friends down in Wyoming, PA, and they just laughed at him. They said, come on, Steve. Five animals a week, 10 animals a week. He said, we need 250 minimum. So I'm like, oh, my God. But then I did get my calculator. I said, wait a second, 250 a week. It's only 13,000 annually. You divide that by cow-calf farms at 30, 40 head. That's only 400 cow-calf farms. And, you know, finishing farms, you can say, take 750. So there's 15 finishing farms. This is not crazy idea, particularly in the Northeast here. You know, we, we had identified the Northeast as the same area that USDA does. So it's New England, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware. In West Virginia, so over 500,000 beef calves born every year in this region, and they almost all go to the feedlot. So the cows are here, and so could I capture 13,000 of that 500,000? Doesn't seem like a big job, but that's the job we're working on right now <laughs> to get to that next level. Because because the bigger plant where the costs are gonna be like $250. I mean, there's so many things. It's like on the small plant, we need to do an E. coli test before we can grind our meat. So you take a test, put it in a, in a shipper, 75 bucks, ship it to the lab, wait 48, 48 hours before we can process our meat. The bigger plant, the, the pallets going down the chain, two vets put, put in a probe, put it on the bench, gone to production. So there's all these efficiencies that the small to medium just can't ever get there. And, um, you know, well, it's, in, it's, in all it, fairness, I mean, medium, if, if uh, get doing 50 head a week, that's still fairly medium size, but I don't know how many is consult or 50 head a day, you know, it's still consolidating with others. I assume that's still not, that's right. still not JBS, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, you don't need to be a JBS 10,000 a day or 20,000 a day. But right. there's a middle ground. I mean, that's I, I'm just relating our experience. And believe yeah. me, we've tried. Yeah. Oh, we've done uh, kosher killing down in Maryland, so we sell the front halves for a lot of money. But then we got to get rid of all the rear. You know, there's there's all these um, possible ways to be in the marketplace, and there's all this, there's also direct marketing. That's something that during the COVID really took off. I mean, all these little people with a farm store or a freezer in their farm, boom, sold out, and they're calling me. And I'm saying, well, what are your specifications? You know, just something breathing with four legs. They go, yeah, that'll do. I'll take those. <laughs> and they booked up all the slaughterhouses for like three years. But now, a couple of years down the road, you know, a lot of those people have faded away because that's, I mean, it's a great concept, but it's a hard job to, you know, sell direct and, and you know, grow them, manage them, get them harvested, package, put them in the freezer, take them to the farmer's market. and or, or have people come to your farm. There's some people that are successful at that. You know, obviously you get the Joel Salatons things of the world. There's some people that are very successful with that model, but it's a model that a lot of farmers 
um, <clears throat> you know, would rather stay home and farm than go to the farmer's market. And, you know, that that's, we feel like there's a space where, you know, we could collaborate with a far, on farm and, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't work unless we can return some dollars, you know, from the whole system back to the farm gate. If it doesn't work, if that doesn't work, then it doesn't work. But that that's the, the trying to just be frank about the, uh, the the learning curve that we're still on. Well, it's it's uh, from my own experience, uh, we're doing everything that you said from from breeding to selling a steak and everything in between. And the processing is, is a, I mean, we work with a good local processor. It does make it a good quality cut and we don't have any problems with that, but we are at a thousand dollars a head, you know, because right. he's processing 15 a week and, right. and uh, he just don't have the volume to, to get the secondary markets for all the awful. And, and right. it, is, it is a real, real problem. And, you know, to get to that next step, it's a big distance between where we're at today to get to that, you know, kind of that magical kind of the minimum for anybody to talk to you is a, a load a week. Right. Right. And, uh, and, it, and it's a big, big, big jump. Yeah. And it's not going to happen at, at scale, at least here in the Northeast, you're not going to have farms that except the finishing farms, it could have 750,000 head. But the thing is, you know, everybody gets involved in this and we actually got a, 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 a government grant, um, to study, you know, uh, what happens to the rest of the animal, you know, 30% ends up in the bag as meat, you know, <laughs> what about the rest? So we did a, you know, a business plan on the hides and on the offal and on the fat and on the bones and on and on. But the challenge is <clears throat> you can't even really begin to play in those games until you have some volume. You know, I can't, I can't afford to truck five fresh hides from Vermont to New York to the, to the hide place you know the, the economics just aren't there right and yet when you get to some scale then and actually now you have some big companies like new balance and people like that timberland who, who want to buy grass-fed right. hides yep. but they got to have some sort of they can't buy a one-off they can't buy a half a dozen you know they need a truckload and yep. and so that's the you know i think the markets are coming like that but it, it goes kind of hand in glove with the scale to be able to do some of those things that we all know, understand are the best, you know, you want to use the whole animal. You do not want to throw the kidneys and the liver in the, in the dumpster. But, and I think, you know, for everyone listening here, Ridge is making some great points because if you considered integrating livestock and those kind of things, you know, these are all efficiencies of scale, but also efficiencies of, of market. And um, you have to be aware of that. And, not just uh, because, you know, you heard something on a seminar somewhere someday, you know, hey, I'm going to go do this. It's uh, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. We'll put it that way. So yeah, right. I'm kind of setting you up a little bit here for your book. But uh, tell us uh, the genesis of the book and, and what that's all about and what someone will, um, you know, do better and be better as a result of reading that. Well, basically, the book, I think I said, or maybe I was talking to somebody else, but it, it came out of you know, an editor coming up to me and saying, hey, you ought to write a book. And uh, so my co-author, co Lynn Pleasure, is uh, my former wife. So she lived with me for about 40 years and heard all the stories a million times. And she's a fantastic writer. So we sat down and said, fine, we'll do this. And well, that, that um, an amazing story in itself right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, the um, 
you know, the, the book is not a how-to in specifics. Like, you're not going to find out about linear measurement or ultrasound or any of those things. It is more um, an attempt to get the farmers to understand the possibility of this system and gives a few hints. It's not like we don't tell anybody anything. But it's also uh, for the general public so that the general public can begin to understand, you know, that cows are not the problem necessarily. Cows can be the problem, but the cow's not the problem. The cow's actually the solution. So a lot of the presentation is, look at this, you know, the, in terms of, you know, we go in depth into the soil and the soil health and the human health and uh, agricultural, rural economy health. So there's a, so it, and, and we talk about processing and we talk about, you know, the things that are missing in terms of policy. You know, the fact that we could, we could really use a country of origin labeling bill. And, and, you know, back to when you were talking about the pigs and chickens, one of the, and the expensive grass-fed beef, you know, people say it to me all the time, say, well, you know, I buy this commodity beef. It's a lot cheaper than your grass-fed beef. I said, wait, 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 wait. You paid your taxes. Your taxes went to the USDA. They gave this guy a subsidy. It's the only reason he's growing corn. Now we have excess corn and we send it to the feedlot, put it through these cattle, which kills the Gulf of Mexico, destroys the cattle, makes for the antibiotics in the meat, on and on and on. But you already paid for that subsidy. That's why that meat is cheap. It's a very hard story to tell and more harder for people to understand it, but it's a true story. <laughs> so, you know, if you could kick those props out of the corn and soy, that's, a, you know, what I tell people, I say, look, I could stop the flooding in the Mississippi. I could cure the drought in the West and I could cure human obesity. You just have to give me the three states of Illinois, Iowa and Indiana, which are 97% corn and soy. And, and a big herd of cattle. And they would fix those problems. Nobody's taken me up on it yet. But you know, when you when you dig into this, that, like on a on our website, there's a uh, a guy, uh, Stan Bowles, who's an NNCS guy that does a perk test. So he compares corn land with extensively grazed land. The way it's done out west, you just turn the cattle out all summer, no fences, no paddocks, no nothing. And then the way we do it, the multi-paddock race way. So in the first test on the corn land, he pours the water in and uses his cell phone 30 minutes to percolate. So you wonder why the Mississippi floods? You have whole states in that watershed that are impervious. They're like macadam. Water runs downhill. It's going to go into the Mississippi and flood. So now he goes over the extensively grazed land, dramatically better. Pours the water in seven minutes instead of 30. That's great. Then he goes over to the adaptive multi-paddock grazed piece of land, 10 seconds for the water to percolate. So you want to, <laughs> you want to, and the reason it percolates is because it has the carbon, has the porosity, the water penetrates, the carbon's in there, carbon captures the water and you have that old water cycle, the way we learned all in junior high school biology, you know, transpiration, rain, water, you know, but we've destroyed that at a, macro level but the the exciting thing is i know i could take that corn land and in two years with a herd of cattle i would have it hold in one i know because i've done it <laughs> i've done it in all parts of the country so we just need the market to really be pulling on that enough to to make those shifts i agree a hundred percent in agreement there so um well uh, you know, we, we've had a, a great visit here so far today and uh, 
kind of bumping up on the clock here a little bit. Anything else uh, should have brought up or we should have visited about while we were together today, Rich? We've covered a lot of things. Well, I don't know. Like I say, you know, the challenge with me is finding the off switch. I'll just keep on going. So <laughs> you're gonna have to pull. You're gonna have to pull the plug. The original Energizer Bunny right here. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> but no, I, you know, uh, that's what we're on our real crop farm. We're integrating livestock uh, for that, for basically uh, soil improvement and. Uh, right. No, and, and well, well let, let me. And, and it's it's making some dramatic differences. Right. Let me make a quick point. So everybody's heard of Gabe Brown. He actually wrote the foreword of our book. So Gabe Brown, early adoptive cover crops and all that kind of thing. So he had it on his farm and, and we have graphs that show this cover crops. Oh, improve the soil. Cover crops improves the soil. Cover crops improves the soil. Add the ruminants like a hockey stick. Yeah. So that's those are the facts. And, and you know, the, the peer reviewed research supports all that that the room that that the rumen ruminant added into the mix makes a huge positive impact to the rapidity of the soil building and and everything else and so. i do think a missing piece of this is the market um you know having something that farmers can plug into that can be of the uh, scale advantages right. I, that is um that is a piece that needs solved and, and yeah. not just you know, a branded program where they come and buy it and, and take it to a processor and, and pay you 20 cents more. There needs to be, uh, there, there needs to be equity Absolutely. from the farmers to, to do this. Um, believe we, believe me, we're working on that. I, I'm talking, I'm in the, um, in, uh, talking about contracts right now. I'm not going to say more than that, but uh, there, there is, What's exciting is that there is interest at the levels that really understand what we're doing and wants it. Mm -hmm. Now, whether we can get enough premium to make it, you know, work for our farmers is the big question. But that's, you know, they're at the table talking a lot. Right. Of them. So, well, if you're taking $500 an animal off in the processing. Okay, exactly. Word, word now, you've just yeah. saved a dollar to dollar twenty-five a pound in right. the meat. Exactly. Uh, so that that's a that's a big thing, you know, right. and uh, that that dollar dollar twenty five, you know, uh, now you can maybe keep a portion of that, but it certainly if you even split it, if you split feed. that with a farmer per pound, boy, it's a big big number. Exactly. <laughs> now we're talking more than twenty cents, so that's awesome. Right, right. Well, we'll certainly have links in the show notes on on how to uh, get connected with you and your book, uh, your website that you mentioned, and, and those kind of things. But uh, I think it's really important. Uh, once again, you know, even though we we like to talk a lot of technology on the podcast and such, you know, sometimes people uh, there's some stats that say people need to hear something 27 times before they make a change. Yeah, so it's absolutely I true. I really like to hammer livestock integration, and there's a lot of great reasons for it. And, uh, you know, for those that, uh, you know, uh, it's all about, it's the best way to say it is it's the how it's not the cow. And, uh, we need to get our how right. But most importantly, we need to get livestock back on the land because they make such a dramatic difference to soil health, which is water cycle ecosystem services, you know, and, and, and also human health. So absolutely. We, we Couldn't agree more. Certainly well, appreciate you know, everything you're doing to, to get that message out there. Right. Well, if you guys ever want to have another conversation, I'm in. So that you know, sounds fantastic. This is an ongoing. Conversation, <laughs> right. Okay. Very good. Thank well, thank you. you Rich. We appreciate your time today. 
Thanks for listening. There's so much information in this packed discussion, but the word that comes to mind is regenerative opportunities. The opportunities that Ridge has developed working with others to implement grass-fed beef are having a profound impact on soil, and it's exciting to see his enthusiasm, thought process, and ability to examine a problem and find a solution. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about the kind of problem-solving we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.